thank you all for being here with us this evening. If you've got a Bible, we're in Acts 5 this evening to finish off um, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. I've enjoyed uh, preaching all of Acts so far, um, so it's hard to pick, but uh, I really have enjoyed chapters 4 and 5 are so incredible in that they put so much responsibility on us. They, uh, the weight on our shoulders, and I don't say this to, to, to offload it for me, it's on mine. The weight on our shoulders uh, as hearers of this word is incredible. Uh, James said, don't just be hearers, but be doers. Of course, the disciples were both hearers and doers, but we talked about it. They felt the weight. They understood their responsibility. They had, as we'll talk tonight, a, a must on their hearts, and they could not deny that there was something uh, bigger than this world and bigger than their own lives uh, demanding and at stake. So, they responded, and, and as hearers of this word, and you know, you say, well, every Christian is, is responsible. They are, but not every Christian has heard what we've heard, not because it's come from my mouth, but it's come from God's word and God's book. And we, as Christians, 2,000 years later, have to reconcile, have to wrestle with these chapters and have to ask ourselves, does this still count for us? Does this still apply to us? Are we still accountable to what they were accountable to? And, and we have to make that decision. Of course, I believe, I think you believe, I think most Christians would believe that we are accountable to the whole word of God. The New Testament um, gives us an example to follow in the early church, and we cannot ignore the pattern that was laid before us if we want the success that they saw, not in numbers or in, uh, as, as, as the world counts success, but in terms of an impact, in terms of making a difference for the kingdom of God. If we want to see what they saw, we're going to have to be what they were and be who they were and be like them. And we've made it very clear, and the Bible has made it very clear what we uh, are called to do and who we're called to be. So last week, we ended with yet another heavy series of questions inspired by yet another amazing testimony from none other than the Apostle Peter. So I want to get us started by refreshing and rereading his defense before the courts that arrested he and his friends, he and his brethren, as they had been preaching the gospel, were let out of prison. They went back and preached the gospel once again, and then they were arrested once again. And in chapter 5, verse 27, this is the scene we find Peter in, a familiar one at this point. When they heard, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, "'Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look,' You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered as if they were in unison, as if this was something that they didn't have to think twice about. We must or we ought to obey God rather than men. That yeah, we heard your demand and we understand the consequences that are at stake. We know what you're going to do to us or what you might do to us, but we have a greater obligation. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him at God exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness. We are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We find Peter on trial once again with his friends, with his companions, arrested for preaching the gospel, given an ultimatum. If you continue to preach the gospel, you will suffer consequences. So preach all you want or you will suffer the consequences for doing so. Continue to stand for Jesus and you will suffer the consequences for doing so. But as we talked, Peter and the disciples saw it another way. They saw the consequences coming if they did not obey God 
rather than if they did, if you understand me. They weren't afraid of what the world might do to them. They were afraid of what they might miss or what the world might miss out on from the kingdom of God toward the world. They were aware that if they did not, then the world might miss. They might miss out on what God wanted to do because they didn't see themselves at the mercy of men. They saw themselves as dependent on God. Very subtly there in verse 31, we see this reference to the right hand of God, that Jesus was at the right hand of God. That's the power position of God, that these men pretended to be in charge, but Peter reminds them, let me remind you all that Jesus is in control. You may think you're in control, but I know, we know, we're witnesses of who is really in charge. So they saw this as, as, they saw themselves as dependent on God. They knew they were beholden to his kingdom standards. So they looked at it this way, that they had to live by the demands of the gospel or they would suffer true consequences. No, not that God was out to get them if they didn't, but that they would miss something too great. They would miss something that was not worth missing out on. So we wonder, why would they give up everything for this? We wonder, why would they cash out their estates and share all that they had for this? Why would they deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Jesus daily? Why would they preach his name when it could cost them their very lives? Why serve God at the expense of living comfortably? Why serve God at the expense of living out their dreams or an easier version of life? Why would they do this? There, again, we've talked about this. There's no commandment at all so far in Acts where they were told to risk their lives. Now, we read the Gospels where Jesus said, hey, this is what's at stake. This is what I require of you. This is what you should be willing to do. But they could have weaseled out of that because we do it well, don't we? Hello? They could have found a way to say, well, this isn't really applying to us. We don't have to do this. But they felt something bigger on their shoulders, didn't they? See, they believed They believed that if they did not serve and obey Jesus, that something more was at stake than just their lives. Something greater was at stake. And we talk that this was all rooted in Peter's words in Acts 5.29. We ought or we must. There is a necessity that we obey God rather than ourselves, rather than you or anybody. Now, this necessity, this sense of alt, I want to talk about it in a little bit of a different way to get us started tonight. Um, Maybe you've read before, C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest uh, theologians to ever exist, definitely the greatest theologian in the last 100, 200 years. C.S. Lewis wrote many, many books, Chronicles of Narnia, the great great works of fiction that he wrote, but his magnum opus was Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity, uh, the thesis of that book is is that there is this notion within all of us that there is this notion within all of us, this law of human nature that we all agree on, and whether you're atheists even agree on this, and they don't want to confess that it's from God, but they all, we all agree as people, that we all agree on and uphold this notion, this law of human nature, that sometimes things are not as they ought to be. Sometimes, most of the time, we do not do as we ought to do. That's his thesis of his book, that we all agree that we ought to do better. We ought to be different. We ought to live a certain way, but we just don't measure up. And even though not everybody agrees what that standard is, we agree that we don't measure up to that standard. So C.S. Lewis argues this very notion that we agree that things ought to be different, ought to be better, it suggests that we are submitting ourselves to a higher law, that he calls this a sense of oughtness. Lewis says that every human being bears this sense of altness because we all bear the image of God. Bears this sense of responsibility, this sense of must. 
But Christians, I think our faith in Christ takes this to a whole other level, don't you? Because we have the Spirit of God within us. We don't just have this remnant, this thumbprint of God that nudges us in the general vicinity. We have the full presence of God leading us in the right direction. We aren't just feeling around through the dark knowing that, hey, we ought to do better. We have the Spirit of God that tells us there is a better way and we are able to walk in that better way. That's the off that Peter's talking about in Acts 5.29. It's more than just this general notion that says we ought to be better and do better. We ought to be less selfish. We ought to be more considerate. Those remind us that there is a mark that we've missed or fell short of, but what we witness in Acts is that to an even greater degree. Because we witness the disciples not saying we ought to do better, but we witness them saying we ought to do more, we ought to give more, we ought to serve more. See, they've already realized that the better mark was missed and that Jesus can get us there. But they, they believe that because the Spirit of God was living in them, that they had this internalized new kingdom standard that required that they go farther, that required that they do more. And do greater. Now, this is where a lot of people draw the line. A lot of people say, "Well, that's not for me." And I, you know, I, you know, I'm a believer, but I'm not. I'm not a disciple. I'm a believer. I don't have to do that much. You know, it's just about confessing and praying and attending a few times. This is where we have to look at the Bible and say, "Am I going to be a follower, or am I going to be a consumer of Jesus, or am I going to be a follower of Jesus? Am I going to be a fan of Jesus, or am I going to be a disciple of Jesus?" Now, God's the judge. I'm not saying that there are degrees of, of, of Christians. I am saying that as a Christian, you know what you are called to do, and you know who you are called to be, and you feel this internalized sense of alt in you, don't you? This kingdom standard that has been internalized because literally the king's spirit is inside of you. See, we called this, the Greek word is the word, is the word day. It's the divine day, this necessity. This must move them to make God's kingdom their main focus. This must move them to make God's kingdom their main focus. Within all of us is this same must that is sensitive to what our souls want, what they need more than anything, being in step with, being obedient to our Creator. Now, after Peter says this, the courts are even more incredulous than they were before. Verse 33 uh, it says, when they heard this, they were furious, and they plotted to kill them. <laughs> now, we talked about how, struck in the, how stuck in the crawl the religious leaders were uh, about the disciples' just defiance. We talked about how they were amazed, they were speechless, they couldn't comprehend how people could be so bold after they had been so threatened. We assume that they were only offended because the disciples kept defying their orders, but I think, and we, we agreed, that something deeper is going on in their minds. That I think that the, the council is equally or, or more amazed at how and why they would continue risking their lives. Who, no one's that, no one's that dedicated, no one's that devoted. Who in the world would be that invested? We gather that they couldn't believe that anyone was this committed, that anyone was this genuine in their devotion. This is a similar sentiment that the Roman authorities would have toward the Christians for generations to come. Emperor Julian was a Roman emperor that came around 360 AD. Fun fact, his entire campaign as he took over the Roman throne uh, was to take Rome back to its roots. 
Now, if you're familiar with history, that Rome became a Christian nation around 320 or so AD when Constantine had a conversion on the battlefield. His nephew, Julian, became the emperor around 360, and Julian deconverted or converted back to paganism. And Julian, after being influenced by the pagan priest and the cultists in the empire, Julian began to tell the empire that everything was great before the Christians showed up. We need to get back to our roots and we need to undo what my uncle has brought upon the land, this Christian uh, religion. We need to get rid of it, and we need to get back to who we were before all of this. So Julian is known as Julian the Apostate in the history books um, as his attempt to bring Rome back into paganism was a short-lived um, campaign. Nonetheless, it was one that did some damage to the church or did brought some harm to the church. I want you to listen to how he characterizes the Christians that resisted giving up their prominence and culture at his time. These impious Galileans, and he's referring to Christians as Galileans because that's where they came from. Impious is just a word that means they're defiant toward the religion of the land, which was the Roman paganism. These impious Galileans not only feed their own, but ours also. Who in the world would do that? So he was just, he was taken aback by the fact that Christians were so loving and so generous and so kind. That his entire campaign against the Christians were, these people, these Christians, they're doing good for people, not just their own, but they're doing good for our people. And that's why it's so difficult to try to tell the world that they're wrong, because they do so much good. Remember back in chapter 5 when it said the church had favor with the people? That's what was going on for hundreds of years. It says welcoming them with their agape, which is their love or their loving communities. And I love that line there. They attract them as children are attracted with cakes which we've been loving sweets for a long time, haven't we? But don't you see what he's getting at? Julian is, is just taken aback by the fact that the Christians in the day, against all the things that he was working against them, they just wouldn't stop being Christians. He says, while the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion. What's he getting at? He's saying they can't be sincere. Who loves people like this? No one would actually do this stuff for people out of the genuine love of their heart. They're clearly just faking it. And if we put so much pressure on them, they'll crack. That's what he believed. Because no one could be this genuine, this loving, this selfless. He says they've established and given effect to their pernicious errors. And he says that the fact that they're fooling everyone with their love, it's actually giving them more authority in the land. Such practice is common among them. So he says that the, the loving and the kind, generous nature of the Christians was not just an isolated incident, it was common. And he says it causes contempt for our gods. So what's he confessing there? That the Roman religion w- w- treated people like commodities. The Roman religion treated children like they were problems, women like they were property, and men, as long as you had property and had some money, you could be a god yourself. The Roman religion was an awful, awful thing in terms of how it actually treated people. And Christianity showed up and introduced people to the God of the universe who loves people and provides a way out of sin and a way to live a life that is free from all the things that, that this world is trying to pull us down to. Christianity showed up and actually provided a better way for people. Actually answered that, that sense of all and provided people a better and a more, uh, a more fulfilling life to live. And Julian says, these Christians are just making it hard on me trying to deceive people back into paganism. But his whole resolution was, or his whole reasoning was, they can't be for real. So let's just continue to try to stamp them out. Let's persecute them. Let's crucify them. Let's feed them to lions. Let's kill as many as we can and they'll cower. 
There's no way they're for real. Let's back the church into a corner, and maybe they'll give up. In his confession, and in the confession that we're going to witness by the council, we hear the enemy speaking through them. We hear Satan being honest. See, Satan is dumbfounded by Christian love. He can't comprehend it. He doesn't understand it. Because he's, he's, he's an embodiment of selfishness. He's an embodiment of greed. He's an embodiment of lust. He's an embodiment of it's for me and me only. He's an embodiment of I'll use you to get what I want. He's dumbfounded by Christian or by true love. He's dumbfounded by the love that we have for God, the faithful love for God that God's people have. Who could love someone like that? Who could love God genuinely, even no matter what he might would want to do with our lives? Who would be so faithful? He's dumbfounded by the love, persistent love for people that the Christians are to and you know, have, especially in the day of the early church. He simply cannot comprehend how someone could choose love over hate. He doesn't get it. Maybe that's something we can relate to Satan on because it's hard for us to choose love over hate sometimes, isn't it? He's dumbfounded by who could choose generosity over greed. Who would do that? Who would give up all they've got when they could just keep it for themselves? Who would choose compassion over consumption? Who would say, hey, you have it, instead of, hey, instead of saying it's mine? Who would choose last over first? Who would say, hey, I'm going to willing to give up something now because I believe it's going to be better in the future even though it might cost you greatly? Now, who would do that? Satan doesn't understand it. But see, he's the God of this world. He moves through the authorities that seem to have control, and he strikes the church when we are committed to this standard. You know why he strikes? You know why he attacks? Not to stop us. He knows he will ultimately not be able to stop us. He knows the church is unstoppable, but he strikes out of spite and out of disdain. We've read them plenty of times throughout in the background of these stories where they meet off camera or they meet, you know, back behind the curtain and say, there's nothing we can do to stop this. We can't, all we can do is threaten them, but what are we going to do? What's that going to do? They're too persistent. And here again, they are furious and they want to kill them and they think maybe this will work, but they know it won't. Revelation 12 tells us, woe to you all earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in a great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Emphasis on he knows that he can't and he's not going to win. See, in this text, we get to see behind the enemy curtains a little bit and hear once again from the enemy's mouth a confession of defeat, a confession of futility. And I love what we get to hear next. Verse 34. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So this guy, he's a big deal. He says, hey, take them outside. We need to talk privately. He said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up. Remember Thutis? Oh, yeah, I remember that guy. Thutis, claiming to be somebody, a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. Remember Thutis? He took a group of people, and he said he was going to raise an uh, raise a, a, a army and take back the land from Rome, and then he disappeared into the desert, and we found his body sometime later. Nothing came out of that, right? After this, remember Judas of Galilee? He rose up in the day of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Remember Judas about around 4 or so B.C. when Caesar Augustus had a census over the land? Remember that special holiday? Remember Judas? He rose up in insurrection to say, we're not going to pay taxes, and we're going to take back Rome, take back Israel from Rome. And they came in and squashed him like a bug. And now I say to you, 
keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this plan or this works is work is of men, it will come to nothing. He says, okay, let's, let's just let's think about this. Just a few weeks ago, 50 days or so ago, we crucified Jesus. We were all in on it. We were all there. We voted for it. We celebrated it, and we buried him. And word on the street is he got out of the grave. We didn't see it, and we don't believe it, but, man, it feels like he's alive, and I don't believe in him, but, man, I believe that something's going on. And these men are crazy enough to not stop talking about him, even though they know we're going to kill them. And sure enough, we'll kill them. They're little. We're big. Rome's even bigger. They're not going to make it out of the next couple of years. We'll kill them. Don't worry. But as I observe what's going on here, they're just a little bit too zealous to think this is just of men. Something's going on, and even though I don't agree, I don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and I'm glad he's gone, something is going on here. But if it's of man, it will fade away. But if it is of God, and he said, I'm not saying it is of God, because I've been around a lot longer than these guys have, and you know, the Jewish religion is greater, and these guys are just radicals. But if it happens to be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now, let me make it clear. Gamaliel is not at all suggesting that the church is going to stick around. He thinks it's not a question that it's going to be gone before it's too, too long. He just says, listen, we're right, they're wrong, we believe in the one true God, we killed Jesus because we thought he was not God and think he is not God, so if we're on the winning team, why don't we just let God step in and get rid of these people for us? Finally, someone talking some sense in the room. Because we've seen Peter and them say, hey, we believe we're winning, God, you're in control, and now these guys step up and say, maybe we need to do what they're doing. Because after all, if we're right and they're wrong, won't we come out looking better in the end? Gamaliel didn't realize that like Caiaphas before him, he was actually being very, very prophetic on behalf of the church. He was very, offers us a very hopeful and empowering word. This is hopeful and empowering because we know that the church was and we know that it is of God. We only know Gamaliel because he happened to open his, ma- open his mouth at the right time and get five seconds of fame. And what he said proved to be true for the church and not for him. No one or nothing has been able to overthrow it, and even more mortal men won't be able to ruin it. And that's something we need to remember very, very often. That's exactly the belief the, and attitude the early church had. For, for a few minutes, I want to talk about this, if God is in it pathology that ruled the early church. I want to talk about it in a practical way and then in a spiritual way. Practically, this is why the church, we, the church, should not turn against itself when it comes to charting course for the future. The church, we we can get so argumentative with each other, can't we? We can get so just, you know, at each other's throats. We can get so aggressive toward each other. But we should rather trust in God because doesn't this belong to him? We often talk authoritatively about where God is and where he isn't, but we really should not put ourselves out there like that. Most things that come from man never make it farther than the man's mouth that came up with it. Often some false teachings can spiral out of control, yes, but if we simply stand with God's word, God will speak for himself and the true and right way will make clear its superiority before too long. 
If something makes us nervous, and that happens sometimes in church, doesn't it? If it makes us nervous, we need to simply take it to the Lord and trust Him. It could be that I'm wrong or I'm seeing things the wrong way. So I'd hate to get in the way of God. It could be that I'm right, and if so, I'll be proven right. But if not for me to gloat or glory, that belongs to God. So I best just stay humble and keep doing what I know is right. So often churches can get divided over little small things because we're trying to decide where God is and where God isn't, and we're trying to see who is right and who is wrong. And this happens. This is why the church at large is divided. This is why Baptists can't even get along, much less everybody else that's in the, in the, in the book or in the room. This happens in churches all the time. I know it's sensitive, but this could solve so many problems. It would ease the tension within us. Someone will have a vision or an idea about the direction the church should take that requires change or cost or time or energy. There may be a suggestion to adopt a new approach, to return to an old idea. It could be one of many things. Some will oppose, some will agree, and very often this can create a lot of drama and stunt the church's progress. People ask, what's the point of that? Why do those people always have to start something? Why do we need to raise money? Why do we need to spend money? Why did we start doing it that way? Why can't we do it the old way? Why did we start that anyway? Why can't we change? Why do we need to change? Why did the preacher change? Why did the music change? Why does he keep saying change? We'll never manage everyone's, we'll never meet everyone's expectations or please everyone's demands, but we must trust those in position of leadership to simply operate by this code. That's what the early church did. See, if we're in leadership, we want to be found following God because there's no other way to the right place. But if we're following leadership, we don't want to be found opposing God. Now, in a spiritual sense, this passage offers us something even more incredible. You see, the disciples had heard Jesus plainly say, Peter himself was there. Peter, he said, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, your confession that I'm the Christ, I will build my church and mark it down. Matthew, write it down. The gates of hell will not stop what we're building. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And after that, he punctuated his promises in his resurrection. They had no reason to ever doubt him ever again. Even in the face of persecution or opposition, they remembered the words, if God is for us, who can be against us? If it is of God, you can't stop it. Let me tell you who's of God. You and me. Hello? You and I are products of our children of God. That doesn't give us free reign to do whatever we want to and, and, and trust that we'll not get, have any consequences for being out of God's will. But it does remind us if we are in God's will, trusting in God, if God is for us, who can be against us? The Apostle Paul would go on to write these amazing promises. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? He's channeling his power toward us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. None of that. But then he adds something kind of weird and kind of obscure. He quotes this scripture. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But didn't you just say nothing will separate us from your love? It didn't say that something won't happen to us. It just said even while stuff happens to us that we won't be separated from God. 
even when we are brought before the slaughter like sheep. So we can say, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. More than conquerors. How often do we give up before we ever give God a chance to show up? What would you have been thinking if you would have been standing there waiting for these guys to walk back in the room? I've been running out the door, right? How often do we give up before we ever give God a chance to show up? You say, well, why didn't God show up to keep him from being in this position? You see, sometimes the shepherd might delay to demonstrate his power in the most spectacular saving of ways. Are you willing to trust him if this is where he takes you? Romans goes on to give us a word that captures what it means to be more than conquerors. Later on, it says we're overcomers. You say, well, isn't conquerors better than overcomers? Doesn't conquerors mean we can just knock down the bad guys and drive over them or drive around them or drive past them? Sometimes a Christian's journey doesn't evade or avoid difficult paths, but rather we are led down them. This doesn't mean that we aren't conquerors. It just means that God is going to do something more than just knock the enemy down at first glance. He is going to show us how to overcome in typical resurrection fashion, which will give even more glory to God. Think about some of the great promises of God that we all quote and have learned since we were kids. Isaiah, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. That's a promise from God that we love, isn't it? And I believe it's true. But we often misunderstand what it means that a weapon won't succeed or prosper against us, don't we? Jesus said, I have said these things to you that you might have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And if you trust in me, you can too. So as you face opposition, and you will, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. So I think all of this was on the minds of the disciples as they waited for these guys to walk back in the room, not knowing that they were actually having this very same conversation in the other room. This idea, if God is in it, we can't stop it. And Peter and them are standing on trial saying, God is in it and y'all can't stop it. Probably said it with better English than I did. They didn't say it with English at all, right? So what do we gather from these passages? What do we gather from their confidence on the stand? God is unstoppable. Our hope is unbreakable. The church should be unshakable. Let's say that together. God is unstoppable. Let's go back if we can. God is unstoppable. Our hope is unbreakable. The church should be unshakable. Why? So that no matter what situation we are brought into or find ourselves in, we should be in position to give glory to God and make much of God's promises to us, prove His unstoppable nature, our hope unbreakable, and the church unshakable. Sometimes our witness is the loudest and most powerful when it's the most unlikely. That's exactly where the disciples found themselves. Look at verse 40. They agreed with him. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, 
oh, let's not kill them, but let's make sure they limp out of here. Which showed that these guys were not that confident they were on the winning team after all, right? That word beat is the Greek word flog. They beat them 39 times with a Roman cat of nine tails. Let me just make this very clear. They did not walk out of there. They would have done well to limp out of there. Beaten with the whips of Rome, the flesh would have been ripped off of their backs. Nerves struck. Bones exposed. Scarred for life. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Which is ironic because I don't think they were about to get up very quickly. I believe they had to be carried out of there because of the strength and the torture that they had just suffered. Which makes the next verse all the more amazing. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Do I need to read that again? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple, because they weren't stopping. Daily in the temple in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Isn't that remarkable? Can you imagine? Of course we can. Can you imagine this sort of of boldness and this sort of faith. Peter and his companions were more than conquerors on this day. They were overcomers. They trusted in God's plan. They found joy in their own pain because they saw their sufferings as Christ. As in they were not in vain, they would actually result in some gain greater than their loss. They would bear these marks forever, but the kingdom would be built in some way because of what they suffered. Years later, Peter would go on to reflect on his and his fellow Christians' trials and write this. I'll read from 1 Peter 3. You can check these verses out later on your own, but listen to what Peter says. Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? For even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor to be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Isn't that what Peter just did? Their eyes were always on the prize. They knew the enemy was against them. They never forgot that God was for them and was with them. They always believed that they were his vessel being used to work some good in their broken world. They felt it was their obligation, it was their must to endure the trials as way of confessing their resurrection hope. They believed that their faithfulness in the trial testified to their faith in Jesus Christ. Christians, we should never be afraid or too proud to bear our cross. You know why? Because we know the story will end in resurrection. 
don't we? Gamaliel said, if God is in it, we can't stop it. Peter and everyone were faithful to the very end of the trial because God was in it, God was with them, and they could not be stopped. They believed that every cross ends in a resurrection of some kind. So whether it's some resurrection moment or whether it's our own resurrection from the dead, God is glorified and we are more satisfied. Therefore, we should not be surprised when these trials come. Peter goes on to write in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not think it strange, the fiery trials that come upon you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. Rejoice to the extent that you are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceedingly joy. If you are reproached for the name of Jesus, blessed are you, for the Spirit of God and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. Peter writes as one who literally rejoiced in his own sufferings because he believed he was partaking in the sufferings of Christ and that as Christ was glorified through his death and resurrection, so we can glorify God through our own sufferings. Because after all, God is unstoppable. Our hope is unbreakable. The church is unshakable. So we must, there it is again, We must be faithful in every trial if we are to see God's wonder-working power. We must be faithful in every trial so that we might see the wonder-working power of God. We won't see it if we're not faithful, if we aren't expecting it. We believe that some good is being wrought, some kingdom something in the kingdom is being built, the glory will be revealed someday. This mentality, this attitude, this confidence is why the church made it through the end of Acts 5. This is why they made it through a decade of Jewish persecution. This is why they made it through centuries of Roman persecution. This is how we make it through any trial of our day and age. We can be confident in our unstoppable, our unbreakable, our unshakable faith. No matter the shame, with no fear of the pain, God is always working some kingdom gain. We don't always see it. We don't always know it. This chapter foreshadows one of the greatest chapters, one of the greatest couple of chapters in the Bible. Because these men were about to lay their hands on seven ordinary men. Seven ordinary men that featured one extraordinary man in the long run who took their word and ran with it and was willing to go to the point of death, willing to rejoice in suffering because he believed what these guys stood for. And of course, that man's death would result in the conversion of someone who would change the world. You see, it all builds Peter maybe could not see what the kingdom gain was going to be, but he believed it was coming. They didn't mind to suffer whatever consequences that came along with serving Jesus because they knew in the end it would be worth it. It would always be worth it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, this is a heavy conversation to have. Because it's just so hard to actually get to the point of saying, I would do that. I would be so willing 
to rejoice at the thought of suffering, at the thought of being struck on the back with a whip of nails and glass and metal. I would rejoice knowing that something great is being wrought through this trial. Father, I pray you might would help us to understand just how remarkable this exchange and this narrative is. How you have enemies of yours talking about how God cannot be stopped and they thought they were on the winning team, yet they were really being prophetic of the ones they were trying to stop, of the ones they could not stop, of the ones they did not stop. Father, thank you for being unstoppable. Thank you for giving us a faith that is unbreakable. Thank you for giving us a church that is unshakable. And God, help us to measure up. Help us to live up to this standard. Help us to say we must and we will rejoice, whatever it might cost us, because we believe it's worth it. We believe it's worth it. It's always worth it. God, we love you. We pray for this kind of boldness and this kind of faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.